Well, thank you guys for being with us this morning. Before we get started, before I really jump into to our series that we've been in for a couple of months now on the book of Acts, I need you to know something about me. Uh, and I tell you this not out of pride, not out of arrogance, not so that you'll think that, uh, wow, that's amazing about him. Uh, but I do need you to know this because I'm going to bring it back up a little bit later on in the sermon. So when I was a senior in high school, way back in the day, you know, like four years ago or whenever it was... <laughs> When I was a senior in high school, uh, I had the opportunity to serve as the student body president uh, for my high school. And, and before you, you know, go and think, like, wow, what a popular guy. Uh, remember, I went to a small Christian private school, so I only had to beat out like 65 other people. It wasn't like hundreds of people that I was running against. So I just need you to know that. Uh, I, I, I don't tell you that out of pride, uh, but I, I do I want to bring it back up a little bit later on, uh, and we'll, we'll get back to that. So, so hold that little nugget uh, for later. So we've been in this series on the book of Acts that we're calling I Am Sent, uh, and it's, it's a book that tells us that we are a part of a living community of people. The book of Acts is a beautiful representation of the early church, uh, and we get to hear so many wonderful stories from that. And so we're going to continue that series today. John Mark last week preached for us on Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. And this is a wonderful story of God working in the most unexpected ways imaginable to impact the community of people that needed to hear God's message of hope, love, and grace. And so we're going to continue that story uh, this morning. Uh, after Saul is converted, he's got some work to do, because uh, for a while now, he's been persecuting the church, and they've been thinking of Saul as this person who's going to come and either imprison them or even try and get them executed. And so now Saul's a part of the church, and so he's going to have to, you know, build some bridges. Let's put it that way. He's going to have to mend uh, the fences that he's torn down, uh, and he's going to have some work to do. And so we're going to continue the story of Saul today. And like any good uh, sermon on Saul, we're going to start in the book of Psalms. So if you've got a Bible, feel free to open up to the book of Psalms this morning uh, and turn over to Psalm 72 because we're going to read that Psalm together in just a moment. Because Saul, what happens next in the book of Acts is that Saul makes this claim about who Jesus is. And it's the only time in the book of Acts that, that anyone makes this claim about Saul. Uh, and so we're going to go back, and we're, before we hear what the claim is, we're going to hear a little bit about the history of the people of Israel. So Israel has written down all of these psalms, and they would know them. They would know them by heart. As we sing songs together on Sunday mornings, uh, they, they would sing these psalms together. They would recite these poems that have been written throughout their history, and they're so formative for who they are. And so we are going to read Psalm 72, keeping in mind that this is very much a part of the identity of the people of Israel. Okay, so Psalm 72, starting in verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. Okay, pause. This is the theme of this psalm. We're yearning for a king, for the son of the king to come and to bring righteousness among the people. So uh, remember that for throughout the rest of the psalm. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. May he live while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may righteousness flourish and peace abound until the moon is no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May his foes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. 
May the kings of Tarshish and of the isles render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations give him service. For he delivers the needy when they call, the poor and those who have no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and he saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all day long. May there be abundance of grain in the land. May it wave on the tops of the mountains. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May all nations be blessed in him. May they pronounce him happy. And then as any good psalm does, it concludes with this blessing of God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May his glory fill the whole earth. Amen and amen. So Psalm 72 is this psalm uh, that yearns for a king to come among the people. Uh, Many of your Bibles might have the transcription that says right before the psalm that this is a psalm of Solomon. And so as you think about who Solomon was, remember back to, to the stories of King Saul and then King David and then finally King Solomon. Solomon's example of what it was like to be a king came from his father, David. David, who's this man after God's own heart. David, uh, who exactly does what this psalm calls for, who brings righteousness among the people, who lets peace abound, uh, who brings justice to those who need it. David is this wonderful example. And now Solomon is writing this psalm and say, may I as king have this and may the, the kings who come after me, my sons, may they have this as well. There's this hope, this desire in the people of Israel for the king to bring justice, to bring righteousness, and to bring peace. And it's this beautiful psalm that the people would sing for centuries, for hundreds and hundreds of years, they would sing this together. They would recite it when they would gather, and they would be reminded that the God that they worship has given them a king so that that king can do what God wants in this world to bring righteousness to his people, to bring righteousness and peace in the world. And so for hundreds of years, the people of Israel, as they are a kingdom, uh, as the nation of Israel exists uh, from the time of Saul uh, on down through the centuries, the people would yearn for this. This is what they wanted. And they would hear this psalm and they would automatically think of David because David was the one who perfectly exemplified this. He was God's representative on earth. As you go down through the history, though, we find out after Solomon, the kingdom, the nation of Israel splits into two different kingdoms. And so you have the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And so already we begin to see this fragmentation happen within Israel. How can there be a king in Israel who's this representative of righteousness and justice when the people are split into two different groups of people? And now there are two kings seated on the throne And neither one of them look exactly the way the people thought when they thought of King David. And so, when the kingdoms split, when the nations of Israel and Judah become two different identities, there's this problem now. Because now they don't have the true king. They have several kings. 
And so on through uh, the book of First and Second Kings, you read stories uh, of these kings and their wickedness and their selfishness, and uh, they no longer are seeking the righteousness for the entirety of the group of people, but they're seeking uh, gain for themselves. They only want what's best for themselves. And so uh, you see these things, and so you have the people of Israel reading these psalms like Psalm 72 and imagining what it would be like to go back to have somebody like King David again. What would it be like for the people to not just have two different kings who are on the throne, but for us to have a single king who's like David? And then you continue on through the history, and and both of these groups of people are exiled. They're conquered by different foreign powers, and they're taken off to different lands, uh, and now they're scattered throughout the entire world. There's no kingdom. There's no king. And the people begin to imagine, what if David would come again? What if we would have a king like him who would return us to a nation, who would return us to being God's people the way that we imagined it in Psalm 72? So a couple of other psalms uh, begin to be reimagined. And and so they hear the words of Psalm 72, and they hear these words that we're about to read together out of Psalm 89 and Psalm 2, and and they hear these words and they reimagine. And they give new meaning to these psalms. And so the first four verses of Psalm 89, I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. And then listen to this. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant David, he will, I will establish your descendants forever and build your throne for all generations. There's this hope that the generations to come would have a king like David, a descendant of David seated on the throne. Psalm 2 concludes, starting in verse 7, with these words, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings of the earth, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, with trembling. Kiss his feet, or he will be angry, and you will perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Happy are all who take refuge in him. The psalmist and the people of Israel begin to imagine that the king to come will establish Israel again. And the powers that be, the powers that have conquered Israel, the powers that are occupying, powers like Rome in the day of Jesus, will be extinguished. The kings and rulers of those peoples will be subservient to the king in Israel. Now that's a very long roundabout way of finally getting to the book of Acts, but this is the the setting that the book of Acts takes place in. This is what the people are reimagining. When Jesus comes and lives among the people and teaches, and when Jesus is crucified and then is risen again, this is the climate. This is what the people are yearning for. They're yearning for the king to come again, for the son of David to to be seated on the throne. And so uh, Saul comes on the scene. And Saul knows that the king to come is going to conquer Rome. The king to come is going to conquer and he's going to reestablish Israel. And so when Saul looks at the person of Jesus, Saul knows that's not the person we're waiting for. Because not only does Jesus not conquer Rome, but Jesus is killed by Rome. 
And so Saul, as we talked about last week, becomes this person who persecutes the church, and not only persecutes the church, but he himself claims that by doing that, he becomes the worst of all sinners. That because he was unable to see the unexpected work that God was doing in the life of Jesus, that he himself missed out on the true kingdom coming into this world. And so I want us to finally turn over to the book of Acts and see what happens next, because Saul's been converted now, this unexpected guy, and all of a sudden now he has a message and he has a job to do. And so Saul begins to make this bold claim about Jesus. And so I want you to listen as we read these few verses what it is that Saul is saying about who Jesus is. So this is Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 19. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed, and they said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this very name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the only place in the book of Acts that Jesus is called the Son of God. And I think that's significant. Because not only does Saul call him the Son of God, but he goes on and he proves that Jesus is the Messiah, the word for king. Jesus, the person that they've been waiting for all these years, is finally here in the person of Jesus, the person that the Israelites, that the Jewish people have been reimagining for hundreds of years from the Psalms, finally comes here in the person of Jesus. And so Saul makes this bold, bold claim. He is the son, not just of David, but the son of God. See, this is important because uh, we finally see that, remember, the king, like David, was supposed to be this representative of God on earth who would bring righteousness and justice among the people. And now not only do we have a king who comes from the line of David, but we have God himself amongst us. It's not just that we have a representative for God. It's that God came and is now the king, the true king of the people. And Saul makes this very, very bold claim. And it's a claim that Saul himself struggled with. It's a claim that Saul himself was willing to stand by while people were killed for believing. And now Saul believes it himself. So I told you at the beginning of the sermon that I was a student council president uh, for my high school. Now, what I was careful not to tell you was that I was elected or voted student council president because I wasn't. I actually ran for vice president, uh, and nobody ran for president. How unexpected was that? So I won vice president, and because nobody ran for president, I got bumped up to the big job. Now, that's not even the worst part because, uh, now I told you I only had to beat out like 65 other people if I wanted to to win that election. Uh, So no one ran for president, I won vice president, but nobody ran against me for vice president. (laughs) So I had figured out, you know, through the years, like, you know, the president kind of gets all the responsibility and the vice president is just kind of there. Uh, And so I ran for vice president thinking, like, yeah, I'll just kind of, you know, get to kind of get the title and not really have to do anything. Uh, And so I ran for vice president, unopposed, won, and ended up being bumped up to president. I have no idea what the succession plan was. If I wouldn't have made it, 
I, they would have shut it down. No student council that year. I was talking with John Mark earlier this week, and I asked him, you know, hey, do you have a story like this of something unexpected happening, something that is kind of surprising? And he told me, well, let me think about that. And then we moved on, and we were kind of talking, you know, we started playing basketball on Wednesday nights, uh, and so we were talking about sports, and he was like, hey, I love the NCAA March Madness tournament, and uh, I hope that here in a couple months that we'll be able to, to do kind of a, a league, a tournament together, and, and, and try and see who can guess who's got, who all is going to win and, and all those things. He said, last year, I did really good. I got third place. Uh, he, he played with a bunch of people who are at Pepperdine uh, in his class. Uh, and, and so he's like, I did really good. I got third place. Now, only three people played. Uh, <laughs> the unexpected, right? This is what God is doing. And I'm not trying to say, you know, John Mark getting third or me being student council president is anything like what God is doing in Jesus. But it's the unexpected. It's nothing that you saw coming. The people had imagined for hundreds of years and they thought they knew exactly what it would be like when the king would come again. And Saul now makes this bold claim. The king has come and is among us in the person of Jesus. And here's the thing about this. Uh, This might not be the thing for you, but it's the thing for me, and I'm going to assume that it's the thing for some other people too. This is kind of crazy, right? I mean, this whole story... The whole idea behind who Jesus is, it doesn't make any sense. Like, if you were writing the story, you would not write it this way. I would not write it this way. I would not write that this conquering king would come, but that by, in order to conquer, he would himself give up his own life. That's not the narrative of power that our world operates on. That's not the narrative that, that seems to constantly win the day. It's hard for me to believe this. It might be hard for you to believe it, too. But in Jesus, we begin to see this picture of what it really and truly means to rule and to reign in the world. It's the most unexpected thing. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody saw it coming when Jesus gave up his life, was killed by the Romans, and in so doing established his throne forever. One of my preacher friends says, uh, when Jesus came... Nobody saw this coming. But down to today, we sit here every week and we worship the name of Jesus. And we name our dogs Caesar. It's so unexpected. You would never see it coming. You would think that Caesar, that the people like Caesar would have all the power and they would still have all the power. But we sit here today and we worship the name of Jesus because he's the king and he's seated on the throne. It's so unexpected. But the beauty of it is it's exactly what we needed. We needed Jesus. We needed this king to come and this king to show us a different way. Saul's got some work to do still. He makes this bold claim about who Jesus is. But imagine if you're a Christian living in the first century Imagine that you've heard stories about Saul, that he's come uh, to arrest Christians. He's come to maybe even kill Christians. And I bet that if you were one of them, you'd probably have a little bit of trouble believing that Saul was who he said he was now. So let's go ahead and read a little bit more about what happens with Saul's story, because I think it's so fascinating, because Saul begins to live the way of Jesus. 
And I want us to pay special attention. We're going to reread one of the verses that we already read because it says something astounding. It says that Saul continued to grow more and more powerful. But look at the way that that power comes. Starting in verse 22. Saul became increasingly more powerful, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him. But his disciples took him by night, and they led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was now a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and argued with the Hellenists, the same group of people that he had aligned himself earlier when they had killed uh, Stephen. He's arguing with these Hellenists, and they are attempting to kill him. When the believers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up. Living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Saul becomes more and more powerful. But do you notice the way that he does it? He gets into these arguments and people want to kill him. And so he escapes through a hole in the wall, being lowered in a basket. He has to flee for his life. He goes down to Jerusalem, and he finally uh, is able to work amongst the disciples, and he's able to, to proclaim boldly in the name of the Lord, and they want to kill him there too. So he flees for his life again. The power that Paul displays is the power of the cross, the power of Jesus. He's no longer operating with orders to bring people and arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. Instead, he's fleeing for his own life. Because he knows that the king has come and the king is seated on the throne regardless of the powers that be in this world. Did you notice verse 31? Verse 31 says that the people throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria begin to experience peace. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 72? The, king, the king's son is supposed to come and bring righteousness and justice and peace among the people. And finally, for the first time in Acts, it seems like the church is described as not being persecuted, but as experiencing peace. And it's as if we get this small glimpse into the story of Israel that what God has done through Jesus and now in Saul's life was what was meant to be all along. And it's exactly what the people needed. They needed the peace of God to come among them. And through Jesus, we begin to see that happen. So if you're like me, you wonder, how is Jesus on the throne today? How can that be possible? There is so much hatred. There's so much violence. There's so much this and that, that that everything just seems to be going wrong so often. But the claim that we come together to make this morning, the claim that we come to make together every morning, is that Jesus is seated on the throne 
And he's working in unexpected ways. Maybe he's working through you and me to bring a little bit of peace and justice to this world. Saul had a lot of work to do. He had to, to mend some, uh, some things that he had broken down. He had a lot of relationships that he had, hadn't even nurtured, and he had just totally destroyed and wiped out. Saul had a lot of work to do. And I would say to us this morning, church, that we do too. I hear story after story of people in this church, people in this community who are hurting. Their job isn't going the way that they want it to. Someone in their family is suffering. There's a relationship that's been torn and broken down. We have work to do, church. We have work to repair the relationships, to bring good news to the people who need it most. But here's the thing about it. It's the news that we all need each and every day. It's the news that builds us up. It's the news that brings peace on this world. So church, I hope that the work that you have to do is not tiresome or burdensome, but I hope that it's life-giving. Whether it's at your job, whether it's in your family, with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, whether it's something even more unexpected than those things. God has always worked through the unexpected. And he does so because it's exactly what we need. It's the good news of the cross. That even something so terrible and something so violent could bring us great joy down through the centuries. This morning we're going to have an opportunity for prayer uh, we do this every week, and, and I hope that it's something that you might be willing to take advantage of this morning. Uh, Chuck and I are going to be down front. We'd love to pray with you. Our elders and their wives will gather around the room, and they'd love to pray with you as well. We've got tables set up where you can write your prayer requests, and our prayer teams will be praying for those throughout the week. Uh, there's even a room in the back dedicated uh, to John and Sandy Bell, a wonderful couple uh, who, who thought prayer meant so much in this world. Uh, we invite you to go and spend a few moments alone back there just praying. As we continue to worship this God, church, be reminded that God is working in unexpected ways, but those unexpected ways are exactly what we need, and it brings us good news, and it brings us peace. Let's worship together.